Welcome to another episode of Ed's Up, sponsored by the Southern Early Childhood Association. Ed's Up is a podcast all about children and those that care for them. Hosted by Dr. Melody Musgrove and Dr. Kathy Grace with the Graduate Center for the Study of Early Learning at the University of Mississippi. We are privileged today to have as our guest on Ed's Up, a renowned speaker, researcher, inspirational leader, and now dean of the Rossier School of Education at the University of Southern California, Dr. Pedro Nagara. Welcome, Dr. Nagara. Thank you. It's great to be with you both. You know, Dr. Nagara is a sociologist by training, and he's spent his career focusing on the ways that schools are influenced by social and economic conditions, as well as the demographic trends in local, regional, and global context. Um, he's the author, co-author, and editor of 13 books and many articles. Uh, he's got too many uh, accomplishments to really be able to name during the time that we have together. His editorials have appeared at the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, the Dallas Morning News, the Los Angeles Times. You all get the, the idea. Uh, what a pleasure it is to have Dr. Pedro Nagara with us on Ed's Up. So we're so glad to have you. I know you have a, a new position. You just started uh, as dean, so you must be a very busy man these days. I am at working from home, and which um, is not a not a pleasure. <laughs> <laughs> we all understand that. Uh, we we are all finding new ways to work and to be productive in this uh, interesting time as we all deal with COVID. And it's certainly you know, timely that we think about how COVID is influencing our communities, influencing cities, and certainly influencing schools. And we'll get to that in just a moment. But uh, we're so glad that you're with us. So, Dr. Grace, I'm going to ask you to. Uh, ask the first question. Well, I'm an early childhood educator, and as my mind and other people's discussions about what influenced you to be who you are right now. So in your early years, do you have any recollection of a set of circumstances or one particular time that just was crystal clear to you that this is what I need to do? Or was it something that snuck up on you? (laughs) Um, it kind of snuck up on me, but I, I do have to say, you know, my parents uh, really believed in the importance of education and really emphasized that with us, uh, even though neither of them uh, had a lot of formal education. Neither of my parents graduated from high school, uh, but they were believers in education. My father was an avid reader. So was my mother, though mostly religious text. And uh, they really impressed that upon us. And so I became an avid reader. Uh, very early on, and I attribute a lot of my own uh, educational success to that, that I was, I guess, the kind of student that was doing a lot of, a lot of my learning occurred outside of school, Uh, and I think that gave me a foundation to be successful in school. And when you said outside of school, where were you growing up, out in California, or did you grow up in another location? Yeah, I grew up in New York City. I grew up in Brooklyn. Uh, Brooklyn, New York, a, a neighborhood called Brownsville. I often say it's the part of Brooklyn that still hasn't gentrified. Um, <clears throat> my parents used to, uh, after we did our chores, and we always had chores on Saturday, she would send us to the um, library, public library, as if it was a daycare center. She said, go read at the library. And fortunately for us, there was a librarian who took time with each one of us to find out what we were interested in. And I, I remember when I was eight years old, uh, Miss McDonald introduced me to A Wrinkle in Time. And I would have never read that book because um, I wasn't fond of science fiction. 
Um, but I did. I was fond of Miss McDonald and uh, started reading it. Couldn't put it down. Uh, a few days later, I was back for more. And I, I, I often share that because I, I imagine what would happen throughout the country if we got kids reading independently, right? Um, my father used to tell us, you can get a free education with a library card. <laughs> and he practiced it, uh, but most people don't. I have had opportunity to have conversations with Morgan Freeman, and he said exactly the same thing, that his life was from the Mississippi Delta, that his life was expanded through a, a library card and how he then started to dream and formulated in his mind that there were options that he would not have known about for himself or for others had he not had his library card. So I think that today, particularly in rural areas and in other areas across the country with some financial cuts in the libraries and their staff, that I'm glad you brought that up because that just makes the point about the importance of public libraries and how we've got to protect them. I often bring it up because I think we're so focused these days on technology, on getting kids on, on screens. And, you know, I understand that we need to, to use that, especially now for remote learning. But getting a book into a child's hand is still very important and letting them appreciate the importance of reading so that they become independently motivated learners. I can't uh, say enough about that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think your point is so important that, um, you know, we talk a lot here at the Graduate Center for the Study of Early Learning of the importance of just one individual in a child's life that takes up time with them That is, and that that individual does not have to be influential or um, wealthy or any of those things, but having one person who, and that, that librarian who took up time with you and others in your family, you know, that one person can make a huge difference in a child's life. Absolutely. So, Dr. Nagiri, your work really is focused on equity and the various gaps that we see between children of color and their peers, their white peers, and what can be done about them and what schools can do about those. Would you describe those gaps and, and why those matter? So, you know, I am, um, I think, a perfect example of why equity is important, both in terms of my own life and now as a father of, of five children. You know, growing up, I, I did not have parents that could help me with homework or because they didn't have a college degree. They couldn't advise us about uh, how college worked and, and how to navigate those forms. That was really left to us to do on our own. Uh, now, equity really draws attention to the needs that kids bring because we know there are a lot of kids out there who have a lot of potential but don't have opportunity. And unless they connect with a caring adult who opens doors for them and shows them where opportunities lie, very often that talent is not developed in a child. As a parent of five children whose ages go from eight, the youngest, to 38, the oldest, <laughs> I always say that anybody with more than one child is practicing equity at home because they all have different needs. And my oldest son was just here when we started. He just completed his PhD from US, UCLA, and he wanted to show me a plaque he had, he had won. And although he's 38 and has a child of his own, he's still looking for lots of connection, feedback, support, different than he did when he was younger, and certainly different than my eight-year-old asked for. As a parent, we're constantly figuring out, okay, how do we meet the needs of our different kids? How do we give them the time and attention that's necessary because we're concerned about outcomes? 
And all parents are concerned about outcomes. Namely, we want our kids to be happy. We want our kids to be independent. We want to see our kids thriving. That's what all parents want. Right? If our kids get good grades, but they're miserable and depressed, we're still not happy. Right? So uh, schools have to think about the different needs of our kids, the academic needs, the emotional, the social, and the psychological, because they're all in the same person. And it tends to be that the kids with the greatest needs are the kids who fall, are most likely to fall behind because they need more support, more attention. Now, I don't think it should just be schools that have to address all those needs. That's part of the problem in our country, is we put too much expectation on schools, and schools don't have all those resources. It's not fair to ask a teacher to be a teacher child to read and to be a surrogate parent and to be a therapist and to be a social worker. That's, that's not fair. We need an actual social worker. We need a counselor. We need support systems uh, so that, that all children have the ability to grow and develop, contribute to themselves, their families, and the country. It's in our interest as a nation to do this. Yes, and, you know, the intersection of our work has really been around children of color identified for special education, the over-identification of African-American children, particularly boys, children of color, children from poverty in special education, and then the achievement gaps between children with disabilities and children without disabilities, and compounding that with the um, tendency to segregate children who are then placed in special or who are identified for special education. So, you know, again, those those gaps, not just between children of color and children without color, but children with disabilities and children without disabilities, and which then lead to those opportunity gaps and other gaps that we've talked about. Would you talk more about just your work around improving schools um, and ensuring that there is equity and that there's opportunity for all children? children, including children with disabilities, including children of color? Yeah, so a lot of my work with schools over the years has focused on getting educators to shift their lens away from focusing on the deficits that they perceive in children, right? So they might be hungry, they might be um, come from single-parent household, they might um, not have the best clothes, etc., but that focus on the deficits often comes at the expense of seeing their strengths. What we know is that when we build on a child's strengths, when we build on their interests and their talents, when we cultivate their talents, then we are more likely to see kids who become confident and competent and resilient. Um, and, and I know that might sound like rhetoric, but that's exactly what coaches do. You, know, you think about a football coach. Football coaches will find potential football players in the, the poorest communities, right? If we see a big kid and they live in a one-room shack, a coach could say, I see an offensive lineman right there. We just need to get that kid in the weight room. We need to get that kid some shoes. We need to get that kid working out. And that kid could become a Division One lineman because the coach can see the potential in the person. That's the same lens we have to have with all children. Because not all kids are going to be athletes, but they could be musicians, they could be writers, they could be engineers. We have to give, schools have to be in the work of developing talents in children. And if we approach the work from that standpoint, then we're able to see that every child comes with gifts and strengths, and our job is to help refine and cultivate those. I so appreciate that point that we need to be a strengths-based system, but yet the American system of special education is 
or, or of education in general has historically been a very deficit oriented system on uh, comparing a child to quote, normal performance and what they should be able to do compared to what they can't do. So I so appreciate that and totally agree with you that we certainly as a nation need to find ways to approach all children from a position of strength rather than from a deficit base. Yeah, very important. Again, I'd like to remind educators that we cannot solve the problem of poverty in our schools. And poverty is an educational issue. We have to acknowledge that because it tends to be that the kids with the greatest needs do the least well. However, poverty is not a learning disability. There's no evidence that because kids are poor, they can't learn. It's when we ignore those needs, right? When we ignore the child who doesn't have a place to live, when we know, when we know the child has no computer at home, but we're giving them work and telling them to download it from the, on the computer, when we ignore their needs, then the kids, those are the kids that are going to fall further and further behind. So we have to see the whole child, right? And, and, and that's just another way of saying we have to recognize what Abraham Maslow told us many years ago, right? That every child has a, a hierarchy of human needs, right? At the base of the hierarchy is the need every child has for safety, for shelter, for food, and for love. And when you meet those basic needs, then it's possible for a child to experience healthy development. If our schools were more developmentally focused, we would see academic achievement improve. When you mention all of those things, of course, that's a good comprehensive early childhood program you've just described. But I would want to ask you the question, well, it's two parts. One is, why can't public educators hear what you and others say when you say exactly what you just said? Is it the assessment? obsession, the outcomes, the measures, the what you're held responsible for as a school district and how that affects your rating in the community? Is it the old, good old American competitive, who's going to be the best whatever school? And the other question has to do with teacher education, teacher preparation. Are the schools of education failing to emphasize, again, the same principles that you're putting forth in terms of the courses that they teach because everything is somewhat compartmentalized. Like you have courses that deal with language development. Then you have another course that deals with social studies and another course that deals with child development and so on. And that there does not seem to be an overarching interconnection around some of the things that have to do with equity, let's just say. So, you know, it's, it's easy to criticize schools of education because, um, the part of the problem is that in many universities, the resources are not put in there. Um, and what's more, training a teacher is much more complex than many people realize. So there is a lot that they need to learn. They need, you know, there are specific skills related to instruction that they need to know. For example, just teaching a, teach, teaching a teacher how to teach reading is very complex, right? And it, it takes time to get good at. But on top of that, you have to teach that teacher how to build relationships across differences of race and language and culture and socioeconomic status. That takes time and work too. And then ideally we have to do that work in schools because if you teach them at the university, but then they're put in a, a school without resources and with kids that they don't know, then a lot of what they've learned is going to be useless. And so, you know, I often say that the training of teachers should be like the training of doctors. We don't train doctors at the university. We train them in hospitals. They don't, you don't put a brand new resident 
to work on a, a, a sick patient, you have a, a, an experienced physician doing that with the, with the residents learning from the experienced physician through an apprenticeship model. That's how we should be training teachers. And I think if we did that, we would see, not only would we see teachers becoming more effective what they do and less likely to blame the kids, we would also see teachers staying in the profession longer because they would experience success and joy and be more effective. We, I, around the country, we see a lot of teachers burning out and they're frustrated because they're getting blamed and sometimes they're blaming the kids or their families. Blame gets us nowhere and it results in lots of uh, talented people who could have been good teachers leaving the profession prematurely. Well, as you probably uh, can appreciate, across the country there is teacher shortage. And Mississippi is one of the ones that we have suffered greatly through the problems with finding teachers that were qualified or certified in the areas in which they're teaching. That was before COVID. Right. So now we are really uh, up a, a creek to find, again, the people who were certified in teaching algebra rather than just somebody who has a degree that may be in there that can be under a temporary teacher certificate. And that's not just unique to Mississippi, unfortunately. And I know that there are a lot of issues around the profession itself and the pay that is associated with it by state. And southern states tend to, to pay their teachers lower in some other parts of the country. But, I mean, we could talk about that for several years. Right. So what would be your thoughts or your advice to folks that are listening to this around behavior difficulties and how it appears that children, particularly boys, seem to end up more in the conditions of being suspended or uh, in some way removed from the classroom? And that, that when you're four years old, if it starts to happen then, that's really, really, uh, as you know, sending a terrible message. We have got to look at equity from a much earlier standpoint and understand that, that children can develop from a self-esteem standpoint some very hurtful and uh, not healthy views of themselves as very young children. Yeah. I, I think the, the first thing I would say is we have to make sure that when we do something to intervene, to, to help a child that there's actually evidence that they're helped. Because a lot of times under the guise of helping, we're actually isolating a child and denying them basic learning opportunities. You know, I go to a lot of schools. Anytime I visit a school and I see that special ed is a place where they put children that either they don't want to serve or don't know how to serve, I know it's a problem. Because if it's done right, it's based upon an accurate diagnosis of the child's needs so there's a plan, an individualized educational plan to meet those needs. And if we are meeting those needs, then we should be placing that child in the least restrictive environment, right? Now, the other problem is very often we focus on the behavior that's problematic, but we don't address the cause of the behavior problem. Hungry children will act out. Children who are neglected at home will act out. Children who are bullied may act out. If you don't figure out why this child is acting out, what ends up happening is all you're doing is punishing the child. And after a while, you make the problem worse because then the child is not in class learning. The child starts to internalize the idea that they're a problem and they're seen by everybody else as a problem. So you create a self-fulfilling prophecy that this child is a problem. What we should be doing is addressing the cause 
Now, sometimes the cause is complicated. Suppose a child has an incarcerated parent and they're missing their, their, their mom or their dad. Then we have to figure out, okay, what do we do to maintain, to address that need that a child has to have a connection with their parent? How do we make sure there's another caring adult in their life? So I don't want to suggest that the problems or the issues are simple, but I would say that we are too often responding to the needs of children with punishment rather than care. And it should be care first. It's not to say there shouldn't be consequences for misbehavior. There should be consequences. Kids need to learn values of honesty, respect, integrity, empathy. But values have to be reinforced, have to be modeled, have to be taught. You don't learn values through punishment alone. And so what concerns me is, um, you know, race is a big problem throughout this country. And I I know it's a big problem in the South that, that we often um, see black children especially as a problem. And very early on, behaviors that we, we consider to be problematic, a child won't sit still, instead of figuring out, okay, well, how do we engage this child? We are more likely to punish that child. You know, we know, for example, and there are a lot of kids now who are being identified as having uh, attention deficit disorder. And I'm not going to say that that's not an issue, right? I am going to say that kids who learn to play chess, kids who learn to play an instrument, <laughs> kids who learn, are able to channel their physical energy in a, something constructive like sports or dance will be less likely to be hyperactive later on. So we've got to figure out how to work with children. These are not new ideas. Right? Maria Montessori, <laughs> who was uh, a physician, not an educator, understood over 100 years ago, that you've got to create support for children, for children to develop. And when that happens, children will grow, they'll learn, they'll do those things naturally, because to be human is to learn. Oh, my goodness, what a rich conversation this is. I mean, it just seems like such a a perfect place to say, I, I am constantly amazed at the things that we do that we know don't work. Um, I, I, for the life of me, can't understand why we continue to suspend and expel children when there is not one shred of evidence that it improves the be- their behavior, that it improves school climate, that it does anything positive. On the contrary, it does just the opposite. The research is very clear. Fortunately, there are schools around the country that are implementing positive behavior interventions and supports, over 20,000 schools, and we do know it works, but it's just not widespread enough. So thank you so much for that point. You know, and let me just just elaborate a little further, because some people hear this and say, oh, you want to put up with bad behavior. So why would you think sending children home to watch television and play video games is going to change their behavior? At most, you're punishing the parent. But beyond that, you're putting the child at risk because now that child is unsupervised. The punishment for not doing your work should be more work, not less work. The punishment for um, uh, acting out in the classroom should be an apology to that classroom. And now maybe you have to do some community service. There's also some very compelling research that shows that the children who are suspended are not the only ones who are hurt, that there's the children who are left in school are collateral damage from those exclusionary practices because they see it as we're we're not important. They don't care if we're here or not. Um, We're expendable. And uh, so there's some very interesting research that shows that the children who are left in school are also damaged by these exclusionary practices. Yeah. Well, because we're not working on building the relationships. We have to work 
part of school has always not simply been about academics, but about socialization, helping kids to learn that they're part of a community and what's their responsibility to others as a member of that community. That means they have to learn things like kindness, cooperation, collaboration. And we know now that those attributes are actually strong indicators for performance as an adult. And so we have to teach those things. But, you know, Lawrence Kohlberg, a a psychologist many years ago, wrote that the goal of discipline is not to teach kids to avoid punishment. It's to teach kids to do what's right, even when adults aren't looking. Well, what does that mean? It means that we have to focus on character, values. We have to model those things. And we have to keep kids connected to learning. The hardest kids to discipline are the kids who've given up, who don't even want to be in school. They don't care if you suspend them. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. We could talk to you. We have run out of the time that we we committed you to. So uh, we could just talk to you forever. We thank you so much for your time. I, I will ask you this. Could we carry on this conversation again at a later time? Yes, we can. Thank yeah. you. These are so, such important topics. And um, it has been our distinct pleasure to have today on Ed's Up, Dr. Pedro Nagara, who is now the Dean of Education at the prestigious Ross Sear School of Education at the University of Southern California. Thank you again. A pleasure to be with both of you and uh, bye-bye. Today's poem is Songs for the People by Frances Ellen Watkins Harper from PoetryFoundation.org. It's a beautiful poem about peace. Let me make the songs for the people, songs for the old and young, songs to stir like a battle cry wherever they are sung, not for the clashing of sabers, for carnage nor for strife, but songs to thrill the hearts of men with more abundant life. Let me make the songs for the weary amid life's fever and fret till hearts shall relax their tension and careworn brows forget. Let me sing for little children before their footsteps stray sweet anthems of love and duty to float o'er life's highway. I would sing for the poor and aged when shadows dim their sight of the bright and restful mansions where there shall be no night. Our world, so worn and weary, needs music pure and strong to hush the jangle and discords of sorrow, pain, and wrong. Music to soothe all its sorrow till war and crime shall cease and the hearts of men grown tender girdle the world with peace. That's Songs for the People by Frances Ellen Watkins Harper from PoetryFoundation.org. Thank you for joining us today for Ed's Up. We're always interested in stories about children and those who care for them. If you'd like to share your story, email us at edsup at oldmiss.edu. Until next time, bye-bye. Ed's Up is a production of the Graduate Center for the Study of Early Learning at the University of Mississippi. The views and opinions of podcast participants are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of the university, its employees, or any affiliated entity.